Well, I would like to add my thanks to our VBS team and to Pastor Marty for leading the charge there and leading the team over this past week and the months of preparation as well. And if you were a part of that, if you, were, uh, you weren't here during the week, but you were at home praying, then we thank you. If you provided snacks and craft supplies, then we thank you. And for those who came and were here bright and early every morning and served in so many different ways, uh, some of whom then left and went to work afternoon shifts. And uh, we really appreciate the time and effort that you have, have put into this ministry, both to our church family and to, uh, to our community. And uh, I had a number of parents from our community talk to me during the week and again on Friday night at our barbecue, just telling me how special this ministry is. Uh, some of our community parents were calling other parents uh, in the community of, of their uh, children's friends saying, you, you've got to send your kids here. And so they were bringing more kids throughout the week and rounding them up for us. It was great. So we want to thank you uh, for that. Well, let's pray together as we begin our time together in God's Word this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this week of ministry you've given. And now as we gather in this place today to look into your word, to sing your praises, to reflect and remember what you have done for us. Uh, we pray that you would be honored in this place, be honored in these moments now. Would you speak to us? We've been singing, inviting you by your spirit to come and to uh, meet our needs and uh, work your will in our hearts. And we pray that that would in, case be, in fact be the case as we meet now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a, a sheep rancher in Texas back in the days of the Depression. His name was Yates. He had a lot of trouble, as you can imagine back then, making ends meet. He had no money to pay his mortgage. They was, he was afraid that his ranch was going to be repossessed. Uh, he had very little money for food and clothing. His family, like many others during that time, were living on government assistance. That's the only way they were getting by. Every day as he grazed his sheep on these rolling hills of West Texas, across all that property that he owned, he wondered how in the world he was going to make ends meet and continue to provide for his family. It was an incredibly difficult and stressful time for him. Well, a day came when a seismographic crew was in the area and they came and they talked to him and they said, we think there might be some oil under your ranch. Can we drill a wildcat well? And he signed a contract with them to drill that well. So they brought in their equipment and they started to drill in one of his fields. 1,115 feet down, they hit an oil reserve that came to be known as the Yates Pool. 80,000 uh, barrels a day came out of that well. He had oil. Black gold. Texas tea, right? right? He did not move to Beverly Hills. He kept his family right there in Texas. But as they continued to drill wells, they had wells that were producing twice that on his property. 30 years later, he had wells that were, still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels a day of oil. A multi-millionaire. The day he purchased that ranch, he was given title and rights to all of the mineral and oil deposits on the property. He was a multi-millionaire who was living in poverty, desperate for government assistance. How does that happen? It happened because he was totally unaware 
of the resources on which he stood and walked and lived. He was totally unaware of what was at his disposal right there. And so he continued to work and live and carry on as though those things didn't exist. Well, friends, we've been talking this past, uh, this past while now about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when we come to talk about the Holy Spirit, typically people talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Those seem to be the two directions we go. And those are both good things. They are true. They are important. They are things we need to know, we need to learn, we need to read about, and we need to live in light of. And we've studied both of those. They are both true and important. However, when it comes to the person and work of the Holy Spirit, there is also so much more. And sometimes we stop our understanding of the Holy Spirit at those two things and and we don't pursue anything else. We don't dig any further. And we just live on the surface of those two things and we don't realize what else is going on. We have taken time this during this series to look at what it means to walk in the Spirit. The Spirit's work in us. We saw that in Galatians 5. That the Spirit, when He indwells a person, when a person comes to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of life and becomes His follower, child of God, the Spirit of God comes and dwells inside. And the fruit that He produces, not the fruits, the fruit that He produces is His character, the character of Jesus. And it shows in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we interact with each other, according to Galatians 5. And the fruit of the Spirit is, in fact, the evidence of His presence. Where He is, that's what He produces. So if He is present and at work in us, we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit. We then looked last week at 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, and we saw the gifts of the Spirit. What does it mean to serve by the Spirit, to serve in the Spirit? His work among us. And we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that the point isn't so much your gifts as it is your service. The fact that you are serving and how. And instead of saying, well, that's not my gift, this isn't my gift, we get busy, we serve, and we ask the Lord to steer our steps and to show us where that best fit is, and He does. But we talked about how every follower of Jesus is given a spiritual gift and how incredibly interdependent we are. There is no such thing as a lone ranger in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. There just isn't. We come to Jesus one heart at a time. After that, you are no longer on your own. No longer going solo. You are a part of this thing he calls his body. And so as we looked at that, we saw in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, a very important fact, and that is this, that the Spirit gives these gifts. Why? So that as we serve together, this is for the manifestation of the Spirit, It is another evidence that He is actually present here at work among us. And it is also for the common good, not for the good of the person exercising the gift. As we serve one another and we serve together, we're building each other up, meeting each other's needs. But the work of the Spirit in terms of giving us gifts and and His work through us as we serve together and His work in us in terms of producing His fruit Those are two evidences of his presence here. That's how he makes himself known. Well, today we want to continue this study and we want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit for us, the help that we receive from him. Jesus referred to him as the helper. Well, what help do we receive from him? 
So we're going to look under the surface of those first two things where we usually camp out and park and and talk about. We're going to look a bit further. And my prayer is that as we do, this changes something about the way you view the Holy Spirit and that it goes on to change the way you live and act in and by the Spirit of God. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8 this morning where we will look at not only the gifts of the Spirit but the gift of the Spirit and what He does for us. Now Romans chapter 8 has a couple of famous verses in it, well known. Your mind might go right away to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe your mind races right to verse 28 where we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, listen, those are two great verses. But we can't just pull them out of where they are and hang them over our couch, right? They mean something because of where they're located, and we've got to look at where they're located, and there is so much in between those two verses that we cannot miss, but that we often skip. So we're going to look today at the first part of Romans chapter 8. And the first thing Paul talks about in this chapter as he begins a bit of a transition in this, uh, in this letter is he talks about the fact that we have been set free. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free. Read with me in Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been set free. Now, in verse 1, he begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that therefore mean? It means that there is no condemnation based on what he has just taught us in chapters 3 to 7, where Paul has clearly and thoroughly explained and unfolded the gospel for us. He has laid it out in clear terms, and he has gone to great pains to make sure we understand the gospel. And he's saying, because of all of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Remember that from John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus did not come to condemn us. Why? We're already condemned. He came to save us, to rescue us. And therefore, those who are now in Christ Jesus face no condemnation. Why? We have been rescued. That's what he's come to do. Sometimes we think we move past the gospel as we walk with God for a little while. But I love what uh, Tullian Chavidian says when he says, God does not move us beyond the gospel. Rather, he moves us more deeply into the gospel. Because all of the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. The gospel does does not ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change can never come apart from the gospel. And Paul begins this section of his letter that way. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 2 that the power of sin is broken. 
The reign of godliness has come. Now, if you are a scientific mind or a legal mind and you love to just see the flow of logic in something, then Romans 8 verses 1 to 11 is for you. All right? If we were in more of a Bible study type setting and we had the time, we would go through it that way together. Beginning in verse 2, between verses 2 and 11, there are 13 uses of the word for. Where he takes this first statement, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, for those who are in Christ Jesus, and he says, for, because this happened, and this happened because this happened, and this happened because this happened, and he traces the whole flow of logic behind the whole thing. So verse 1 says, there's no condemnation. It is the, the overall statement. The rest of the passage unfolds statement by statement by statement, point by point by point, as he builds these building blocks and shows us how that can be true. And so that verse is also the summary. We got here because of all of these things. And so as he does that, he unfolds for us that we get this freedom because the powerlessness of the law due to the weakness of the sinful nature has been exposed. Law makes demands. Law condemns when those demands are not made. And one thing the law can never do is overcome sin. The law reveals sin. It doesn't overcome it. And so what did God do? He sent His Son Jesus to come and fulfill the law, to come and to live perfectly with no sin, not even a hint of rebellion in thought, word, or deed against God. He sent Him to live this righteousness to fulfill righteousness so that it has been done. Now he goes on to say that he came, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now words mean something, they're important. He doesn't say he came in sinful flesh. How do we know that? Jesus was without sin. He didn't come in the likeness of flesh. He kind of looked like us, but not really. He came in the flesh. But he did not come in sinful flesh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he lived righteously his entire life. No sin in him. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he came for sin. That was his mission, to conquer sin. And so in him, in this righteousness that Jesus lived, and as Jesus was then sacrificed by God on our behalf at the cross and took our judgment for our rebellion against God at the cross and, and, and dealt with that, and God unleashed His wrath upon Him, sin was condemned and judged in Jesus at the cross. So now, now, we can walk as followers of Jesus according to the Spirit. That brings us right back to Galatians 5, doesn't it? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? <laughs> The fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives. Righteousness. We walk in righteousness. We don't just stand in the righteousness of Jesus now. We're also called to live and walk in it. And how do we do that? By walking according to the Spirit. You and I, as followers in Jesus, no longer have to sin. We no longer have to sin. We are now free to walk by the Spirit. And friends, there is no condemnation if you were in Jesus Christ this morning. Does that make your heart glad? You grateful for that? No condemnation. The 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that in him we could become the righteousness of God. 
The condemnation is gone. We've been rescued. We're going to celebrate that as we remember that and reflect on that at the communion table in a few moments. It's amazing, isn't it? If you were here this morning, I remind you, if you were a follower of Jesus, I remind you this morning, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. You have been set free. Now, Paul moves on from that thought, and he carries us through now, and he says, you've been set free from sin and death, but now you've also been given four different things. And he's going to show us what we have now been given. Join me in verse 5. First, he says, we've been given a new mindset. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. We live our lives out of our heart, not, not our physical heart, but heart meaning the totality of who we are, our minds. We live our lives out of our hearts and our minds. That's why in Romans 12 we're told, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Why? Because your mind sets your attitudes, your direction, your choices, your priorities, your values, all of it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, we're told to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. In verse 24 we're, of Ephesians 4, we're told to put on the new self, created to be like God in pure righteousness and holiness. And what's the hinge in the middle that shows us what needs to go and what needs to take its place? What's old man and what's new man? Be made new in the attitude of your minds. How? As the Spirit renews our minds with the Word of God and therefore transforms our lives. Paul says, if you're in Christ, if you're in the Spirit, you have a new mindset. So the question is, where is your mind? Where is your mind set? Where is it focused? You see, the place your mind is set determines many things. It'll determine your attitudes. It'll determine your values. It'll determine your actions and your direction. Do we have any sailors here this morning? Any sailors? Wesley Hager wrote a poem which includes these words. One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the, waves of, are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. It's not the conditions of the sea that end up determine where you go. It's the, the way you set your sails that steer the ship. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, is your mind set on the things of the Spirit so that you will then walk according to the Spirit? Or are you going to set your minds on the things of the flesh and continue to walk in the ways of the flesh? Because if you do, that says you're not in the Spirit. So he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been set free from all of that. And we have been given a new mindset. We are to line ourselves up with this, the ways of the Spirit. He is, in fact, called by Jesus the Counselor. The one who can steer us forward. So I have to ask myself, 
I have to ask you, are we still thinking like we used to? Are we still thinking and valuing and making decisions the way the world around us does? Do we make our choices and decisions based on instinct or appetite or experience or interest? Or do we take everything we're doing and surrender it to the Spirit of God and say, you show me how to respond in this situation. You show me how to handle this conversation. I have this decision to make. What honors Christ the most? What reflects the power and work of the Holy Spirit and serves the gospel and the glory of God the most in this setting, in this situation? Are we setting our minds on the things of the Spirit? Do you fulfill the first and greatest commandment by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind? Mind. That's huge. What do you think about? What do you value? What do you pursue in your mind? He continues on in verse 7 and says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You can't say you're a friend of God and have your mind set on the flesh because those who have their mind set on the flesh, that mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and in fact, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're told in Scripture a couple, of, a couple of ways we cannot please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here, if we're in the flesh, we cannot please God. We have to be in the Spirit. We have to be born again. We need to be His. We need the Spirit of God within us. On our own, we cannot please God. Our minds are hostile to God, and we live in rebellion to Him, doing our own thing. Doing our own thing. Hmm. Well, he continues... There's good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, then you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. You have been set free. You've been given this new mindset to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, to walk in a way that honors God. You have been given now, as, a, as his child, the righteousness of Jesus as you stand before God. And you have been given the guarantee of eternal life to come. That's verses 10 and 11. The Spirit delivers the righteousness of Jesus here and now and the promise of eternal life to come. Friends, we have been set free and we've been given a new mindset. But he goes on to say we've also been given something else. He says, we've been given a new relationship with God. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, based on what I've said, live like it. Live like a child of God. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What does he say? We've been given a new relationship with God. So brothers, live like it. Live like a child of God. He says we are still debtors, but we're no longer debtors to the flesh, to sin, to rebellion against God, to our instincts and appetites and our fallen nature. No, we have an obligation to whom? To the Spirit. To walk according to the Spirit. To set our minds on the things of the Spirit. He says in verse 9 and verse 14 of this chapter that everyone who's a follower of Jesus has the Spirit of God. Those who have the Spirit of God, they're led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Those who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. You're only led by the Spirit of God if you have the the Spirit of God. Verses 9 and 14 of Romans 8. Every follower of Jesus, every child of God has the Spirit of God. So the question is, have we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? Are we moving forward in walking with the Spirit? And we have this relationship now as children of God with His Spirit planted right in us. And verses 14 to 17 that we just read tell us what? The Spirit confirms the reality by speaking to your heart, by encouraging your heart, by reminding your heart. The Spirit confirms the reality that the believer is in fact a child of God based on what? Based on adoption. We're not all born children of God. We're all creations of God. We are adopted into his family as his children when we come to Christ. And as you unfold that whole concept in in the Roman world, boy, they were familiar with that. The purpose of adoption in the Roman world was not so you'd have somebody else to work for you. The The Roman Empire was based on slavery. They had lots of people working for them. Why did somebody adopt a child? They loved somebody, and then for their own purposes, not necessarily on the merits, although sometimes they would make that choice based on merits, they would adopt somebody into their home. Why? To carry on their name and inherit their estate. Well, what did God do? Through Jesus, he has adopted us as his children. He loved us. He chose us, not on our merits, but on his grace alone. He loved us and chose us for his purposes. He called us into his family. He placed us in his family. And what has he given us? He's given us his name and his resources. So what Paul's saying is, brothers, live like it. We're not debtors to the flesh. We have an obligation to the Spirit. We've been adopted by God. Set your heart and mind on the things of the Spirit. Walk with a mind set on the Spirit. As a child of God in this new relationship, stop living like a poor sheep rancher when you've got all that oil under your feet. That's what he's saying. Take another look. We've been given a new mindset and a new relationship with God. He then says, based on that new relationship with God, we've been given a new future. Verse 17 says, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have a new future. Now he says we are children of God, we are, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have this new future if in fact we suffer with him, provided we suffer with him. For, verse 18, here's another section that continues this on, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's been revealed to us. Now Paul says that about our sufferings here and now. What does Paul know about suffering? I mean, come on. He doesn't know my life. Well, Paul knows something about betrayal. He knows something about beatings, uh, shipwrecks, trials, prison, the threat of execution, uh, poverty. Paul knew some suffering, did he not? Absolutely. And what does he say? That doesn't even belong in the same conversation as the glory that's to be revealed to us one day. My eyes are not on the here and now. My eyes are on home. And I've got to lift my eyes to the future and say, I'm here and now, and yes, I groan and I suffer at times here and now, but I do it with my heart set on home. Oh, there's something wrong here. Things are not as they should be here. Some things just aren't right. Exactly. Where will they be right? At home. The home of righteousness. New creation as we are with Him forever. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus, in the parable of the soils, talks about soil, or seeds rather, that fall on rocky ground. This person, when they hear the word, immediately receives it with great joy. But they have no root in themselves. So they only endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Well, I'm only going to follow Jesus if this makes my life happy and healthy and prosperous and everything else. If it's not all sunshine and roses and lollipops, I'm out of here. And a lot of false preachers in our day teaching doctrines of demons, Scripture says, are condemning people in our culture on the airwaves every single day by promising things Scripture does not teach. And by saying, if you just give me a little more money, then you'll be blessed. And oh, God's going to make all your sickness go away. He's going he's to fill that bank account. You're not going to know what to do with all your money. Everything's going to be fantastic. That's what God wants for His children. No, God wants His children to be right with Him through Jesus, to be holy and to be like Him through the Spirit, and to be at home with Him one day for eternity, where we, we will have all things set right. But that's not what Scripture teaches about here and now. Scripture teaches that here and now, if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus said, take a look at the way the world is going to handle me. They're not going to treat you any better. That's the way it's going to be. So when we tell people that you just don't have enough faith to have, to have health and wealth and all that kind of thing, all we're doing is confusing and condemning people. When we're telling people that if you give us another dollar, you'll be just fine. We're condemning people and we're preaching a false gospel. The gospel says there's going to be suffering along the way. Paul says 
You're really in the gospel. You are really in Christ. You are really in the Spirit if you continue to carry on, whatever the cost, for him who paid such a cost for you, as you have your eyes set on home, not on here and not now. That's the point. So the focus is not so much on this life, and its comforts or discomforts, its disappointments or its struggles. We have a hope, brothers and sisters, a sure and certain future guaranteed by God Himself. So don't settle for less. Some of us spend so much time worried about here and now and focused every moment and thought and effort on here and now and spend very little thinking about eternity and about what, what matters then should matter now. Does what matters to you now, is that going to matter then? That's a good question to ask. We've got to be so careful. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but far too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot possibly imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, look at what you've got here, but you just want to camp out and live like this? Focus on home. Focus on home. Since we have this future, since we have this future, we face today, and we face our circumstances and our challenges and our trials and our pains much differently than the world around us does, don't we? We must. We must. Now, Paul says creation is groaning for that day now. Creation, when we fell, when we, through Adam and Eve, when, when they sinned and mankind was done and fell from grace and glory and we, we became our sinful selves as we see ourselves now, we were condemned and so was this world. This world is degenerating just as we are. Sin, disease, death, it came to all of us and it came to our surroundings. And Paul reminds us that creation itself is groaning for that day when the sons of God are revealed and Jesus comes back and, and new creation. Have you noticed anything wacky going on with our planet at all? Listen, we can fight over the causes and everything else like this. And yes, God created a cause and effect planet. For sure, choices and decisions have an effect. But make no mistake, this place is condemned. And when we see earthquakes, and we see hurricanes, and we see volcanoes, and we see all these things going on, and we see all this stuff with climate change, we see everything else, guess what? One of the things that we need to have is a discussion on the fact that creation is groaning for the day things are set right and creation is put where it's going to be. That's what our world is doing. It's crying out for that day, but not only does creation groan for it now in verse 22, but verse 23 tells us we groan for it now. Every time you say, why do I have to endure this suffering? Why is this falling apart? Why are those close to me having to deal with this? Why? Why? And we feel that and we say that. Am I the only one? Every time we say that, our spirit within us is groaning, saying it's not supposed to be like this, 
I can hardly wait to get home. I can hardly wait to get home. And Paul says, as he's rotting in jail cells, he says, I'm not, that, this isn't even worth being in the same conversation as what I've got waiting at home. And so while I'm groaning here in the cold and the dark with hardly any food, I'm groaning for home. I'm groaning for home. Now he says that we, we're waiting for that day with patience and endurance now. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter? Oh, that God's right here with us now. His presence is with us right here now as we walk through these things. Oh, and he brings patience. But he also reminds us of hope, our new future, friends. We groan even as we trust him and wait with him now. We still groan for that day, and we ought to. Because this day holds nothing in comparison to that day. This place is nothing compared to being forever in the presence of God. That's our new future. Finally, he says, you've been given a new mindset, a new relationship with God, a new future. And in verse 26, he says, you've been given another intercessor. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not, do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As we wait with patience, but patience mixed with longing and that groaning waiting for that day, the Spirit of God Himself helps us. Helps us. He intercedes for us. Have you ever been in a situation that was so deep and so dark and so heavy and so confusing? You say, I don't even know what to pray. I'd pray, but I have nothing to say. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what direction to take this. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what God's doing here. I can't see His will in this situation. It's just so heavy. I don't know. Anybody? We have those moments, don't we? How do we understand this? How do we make our way forward? What do we pray? We're told that the Spirit intercedes for us. You think this earth is groaning or that your spirit's groaning? The Spirit of God is groaning, interceding for us with, with groans that words cannot even express. And where is that directed? The throne room of God. The Spirit is groaning and calling out for us. So when I don't know what to pray for in the here and now, in the particular situation, when I don't know what God's will is, the Spirit is praying right along beside me. He's praying with me and for me. And He always gets it right. Look at verse 27. He has the mind of God. God knows the mind of the Spirit. He's always praying according to God's will. Father, Steve's praying here and he's desperate, <laughs> but he hasn't got a clue. Here's what he needs. Continue your work in that situation. And he's always right. He always communicates clearly and correctly. We now have two intercessors. Verse 34 says, Jesus, who died for us and rose again, is standing, interceding for us at the right hand of God. Should anyone come to condemn us, Jesus is right there to intercede for us. But verse 27 says, the very Spirit of God living within you as a follower of Jesus is interceding on your behalf, calling out to God on your behalf. Isn't that amazing? That's what the Spirit of God is doing. 
So what do we do? We are, we'd be encouraged. You're not on your own. We are not on our own. And we keep on praying. I don't know how. That's okay, he does. I don't know what to ask for. That's okay, he does, and he will. So just keep on pouring out your heart, crying out to God. I've told this story before of the, the, the old woman in a church who, who would come to prayer meeting and she would always pray the same prayer. She would pray, oh God, thank you, Jesus. And it got to be a bit of a joke with some of the young people in the church. Like, what is that? Until they went and asked her. Somebody finally went and said, what's that all about? And she started unraveling some of the circumstances of her life to them. And said, there are so many days, all I can say in the morning is, oh God. And then at the end of the day, when I look around and say, he got me through again, all I can muster is, thank you, Jesus. So I just put them together. When I pray, oh God. Thank you, Jesus. And I let the Spirit look after the rest. When you are on your knees and you don't know what to say, keep on. The Spirit does. And He's right there. So what do we do with this? We've been set free. We've been given a new mindset, a new relationship with God, a new future, and another intercessor. Now that we know this, what does Paul say in verse 12? Brothers, (laughs) Let's live like it. What do we do with it? Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Lord, you shaped my mind today. What should I be thinking in this situation? This thought just came in, and I know that's ungodly. Cleanse it. Get rid of it. Show me how to walk with you. Look ahead more than you look around. Follow the Spirit. Say, you lead me today in the ways that are going to honor you and honor Christ and accomplish His purposes. And no matter what situation you're in, pray. And then when you're done, pray again. And then when you're done that, pray some more. And trust the Spirit of God to groan right alongside of you. He doesn't groan the way you do with a lack of understanding. He groans with absolute clarity because he sees with clarity. He knows God's will. He gets it right every time. But he's right beside you groaning with you. Trust him to do that. And trust God to work in response. Brothers and sisters, I urge us, don't just take this information as some kind of academic exercise and say, well, that was interesting, and walk away. We need to live according to this, setting our minds on the Spirit and trusting Him and walking with Him every day. We need to do that. The Journal of State Taxation in the United States says the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused or unredeemed gift cards. Forgotten about, misplaced or lost, accidentally thrown out or only partially redeemed. They say between 2005 and 2011, $41 billion in gift cards went unused in the United States alone. Billion. No wonder they love when you buy those for each other. They get the money and don't have to give up the merchandise. It's incredible. Friends, don't make that kind of mistake with the resources God has given us in His Spirit. Oh, He's given us His Spirit. Let's set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Embrace what He's given. 
and trust him to cry out to God on our behalf when we're not even sure what to say. Amen? Let's sing together as we prepare our hearts for communion.